Can I sing you a song? Yeah. Miami, Miami, <laughs> you've got style. That was when the Golden Girls were writing a theme to win a contest for like writing about tourism in Miami. You guys, the arm, the, the jazz hands. you got are really style. Almost knocked your glasses off your face with the jazz hands. <laughs> That's how. You know another song I know? What? Julian Pensavale. <laughs> Patrick Hines. Ba-da-da. Before we get to the show, you guys, breaking news, you guys. Our 2020 live tour, at least the first part of it, is announced. It is live. Oh, snap. That means it's real. It's really happening. Oh, my God. You guys, just a reminder, we're doing the Pride show both in Seattle and San Francisco mm-hmm. in June. We're doing shows in Boston and Philly with the Maura Murray Boys and Maggie. Yep. DC and Orlando with Rabia and Susan. We sure are. It is crazy. It's crazy. It's a big deal. I know. Tickets are selling out super fast, so go get them. TrueCrimeObsessed.com. Click on the CS Live link. Yeah, come hang. And also, just one more thing. If you want more Jillian and me, get in the Patreon, you guys. Over 100 full bonus episodes to binge right this second. I know. Lady Pates is where it's at. If you're not into it, that's fine. Yeah, but it's where we do the series. So right now we're doing the Menendez Brothers. Mm -hmm. We did Lacey Peterson documentary, six episodes. Jody Arias. Casey Anthony. Casey Anthony. Lorena making a murderer. The Jinx. The the Staircase Serial. You guys, there's so much stuff in the Pates. Yeah. Check it out if you want to. It's a party and a half. Oh, and there's an after party there. That's true. And you guys, there is a tier where we send you stuff in the mail sometimes and a couple weeks ago we sent people slime slime that we had like specially made for True Crime Obsessed. My mom got it. We made three. We made uh, Minty Fresh that's my drag name. She got Minty Fresh that's my drag she name. She did. We yeah. also made Robbie How that smelled like tea. Amazing. And we made Garbage Bell that smelled like caramel. That's right. I know. I'm obsessed with the pates. I'm obsessed with it. I forget that my mom is a pate. <laughs> is, a, is, what, is part a pate. of the lady pate. Uh, so what, yeah when I went home for Thanksgiving she's like look. <laughs> She's like, what is this slime? She was, yeah, I was like, it's like a stress reliever. She was like, ooh, <laughs> that she was into. Girl, what are we talking about today? We're talking about cocaine cowboys. Yeah, we are. We are. Here's the thing. We had high hopes for this documentary for a, a lot of reasons. Number one, people have been asking us for this for forever. Since the beginning. Yeah. Number two, it's the same director as Screwball, the one with the baseball one with their, like the kids played the grownups. We loved it. We loved it. This one, it's hard to sometimes recognize if a documentary just isn't good or just isn't good for us. Uh-huh. I think this falls into the latter category. I just think this is, it's hard for us to do this because there's like, it's just goes on forever. It goes on forever, but it's also like there are weird cuts like in the middle of sentences. Like it's like I get it, it's about cocaine, it's very fast paced and scattered, but it just felt like, wait, what? Like, I know. And I did feel like they were kind of like glorifying this whole like cocaine trade, which I think is like you're just bringing poison into the streets. Onto the streets you know? I know. But I did feel like they were like, we killed a lot of people. <laughs> I'm like, that doesn't make you cool. In the 70s, when I first came down here, everybody was smuggling potted. The Colombians realized they had a gold mine here. Everybody that before was doing these pot things was now into doing cocaine. The Colombians threw a number at us, $3,000 a kilo. On their first trip, we got paid $1.2 million. Popularity, it began to shoot up. Cocaine deaths in Dade County have now jumped to about two a week. Shotguns, Uzi, handguns. It was the beginning of a war. Isela Blanco was the godmother of the cocaine trade. One mean lady. She likes us to cut people up in little pieces, put them in a small box with a little bow on top. She says, that's the way I do my thing. You have five people killed here, three people killed here. Mass murder. Miami was the most dangerous place on earth. 
They call them the cocaine cowboys. They call them the cocaine cowboys. Cocaine cowboys. This is why Miami is for you. All right, girl, where does this start? Well, like most like most tragic stories, <laughs> Florida. No, I'm sorry, Florida. It starts in Miami, Florida at Dadeland Mall on yeah. July 11th, 1979 at 2.28 p.m. And then it leaves there and right. we get back there in two hours. It's- <laughs> but what happens? Like, there's this insane shootout. We just like, we see the outside of this liquor store and we see this mall. And then all of a sudden we hear gunfire. Glass and blood and bones and guts everywhere. Right, but it's all stylized. Like, this is an right. actual new... They don't have footage of the shooting. Right. Like, Nobody it's was just, filming on their camera phone inside in 1979. No. It's just, like, <laughs> stock footage of the mall and then, like, in a studio somewhere, like, a bottle exploding. Right. <laughs> and it's just, like, why does this movie look and sound like it's from 1985? Right. <laughs> Is this part of the bit, like, that it's supposed to look and feel like Miami Vice, a uh-huh. show that I just hate on sight and have never watched? Yeah. Like, is it is that the bit? I think it is. Miami. I guess. Vice. Miami, Miami, you've got style. Yep. <laughs> so we meet John Roberts, and he tells us he's from New York, and look, New York wasn't so great for him. He had some nightclubs. He, like, was friends with the mafia, uh-huh. and then it didn't work out. What mafia? I, <laughs> don't, listen, the last thing, the last thing, like Valley, you can't say that like that and look at me like that. But he tells us that he leaves New York because on February 17th, 1970, the cops came into his nightclub to tell us that... One day, they just came in, the police. We had no idea why they were there, and then they told us that our partner, they had found him out on the Long Island Expressway, and he had been killed, and he had like 11 bullet holes in him. So who knows what happened to him? On the LIE with 12 bullets in his body, and John goes, so who knows what happened to him? I'm like, John, he was shot to death. We know exactly what happened to him. On the LIE, probably exit, what, 22, I'm thinking? Right by Lafrac City, I'm going to guess. Exit 22, right over the bridge. I had the same thing where I was like, John, what do you mean we don't know what happened to him? We so who knows what happened to him at this point? I mean, God bless. John, 12 bullet holes in his body on the side of the LIE. Do the math. And then he's like, look, there's too much heat in New York. I got to get out of here. So he's like, in order to get out of the heat and get the fuzz off my back, he goes to Miami and starts dealing coke. Smart. Are we going to get a lot of your your New York Queens accent in this one? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Wow, that's a bonus. And the thing is, I'm like, all right, so this guy John doesn't have a lot of good ideas, but he's not talking to us from behind bars. So I guess we'll see how this goes. How about that? (laughs) So then we see like his lower third or whatever. It says John Roberts, cocaine trafficker, distributed over $2 billion in cocaine for the, I can't say that word. Medellin. Oh, oh, oh. That's Pablo Escobar. Excuse me. The Medellin cartel is Pablo fucking Escobar. <laughs> but anyway, he distributed over $2 billion worth of coke for this cartel. Yeah. You guys, we're going back in time. <laughs> it's the 1950s in Miami. And guys, it was a sleepy ass town. The city of Miami area was very, very quiet, and it was just a very pleasant place to live. Miami back then was the South. It was like Alabama. There was no money here. There were no big buildings. Downtown was pretty barren. Miami Beach, it was a lot of old people just sitting around in rocking chairs on South Beach waiting to die, and it was a whole different world out here back then. 
this, someone's like, it was like Alabama, basically. It was just the <laughs> South back then. It wasn't the glitz and glamour you know today. And I'm like, the glitz and I know. glamour? They tell us that back in the 50s, there was one cop on the night shift patrolling an area the size of Rhode Island. Right. And that it was basically just old people sitting on the beach waiting, waiting to, to die. die. <laughs> I want to just read a memoir called Waiting to Die, the Patrick Hines story. <laughs> oh it's just like me pouring myself another martini. <laughs> Shrugging. Well, here, here we are again. Here we are. But so we learned that like it was in the 1970s that, quote, legal and illegal immigrants started entering Miami. Well, Samuel I. Bernstein, who really, really needed that I to be there. He's a criminal defense attorney. He really wanted his middle initial to be mm-hmm. his lower third. He insisted, or I'm walking, yeah. or I am walking. <laughs> So he tells us something, and I'm like, ooh, is that racist? He's like... Miami had by then been established as an environment where a Spanish speaker only could thrive. You guys, this deals with a lot of people from like Colombia, Cuba. We hear people like even on the news refer to them as the Latins. It's like there was a Latin right. and a white guy and we know everything about the white guy and who cares about the Latin. The Latin. I was Truly. like, no. Also, I think we answered our own question. Yes, that's racist. That's totally racist. Right. But like we learned that like the thing about Miami is it was nice and full of old people, but like it was never a place where they took the law very seriously. What have we been saying from episode one? <laughs> They basically tell us what we already know. Miami has no rules. And I'm like, duh, bitch, because it's part of Florida. We've known this from the very beginning. Uh We have no illusions about Florida. No. It's the Wild West down there. We meet a guy named Mickey Monday. And this guy, Mickey Monday, truly, he's got a chip on his shoulder with this interviewer the whole time. I'm an old South Florida boy. and One of the few that's that old that was born here. I was in the import business. do your archaeology, you dig down, you'll find the gun runners, and then you'll find the rum runners, and you'll find the marijuana, and you'll find the Cuban immigrants, and you'll find the cocaine. This city has always had something coming in. Well, he's a drug smuggler. Right. <laughs> and we learned that he transported over 38 tons, yeah. tons, tons. that sink in, yeah. of cocaine from Colombia to the U.S. Over the course of his illustrious career, he, calls it, he says he was an importer. I was in the importing business. You know, this is the <laughs> beginning of these assholes yeah really wanting everyone to be super impressed with like all the illegal shit they did right and the filmmaker is yeah it's and true. i am not so back to john roberts yeah the guy from new york yeah so he had this girlfriend named tony mooney i, I got lucky i think in about 1979 i met this girl i flew to miami and i was working on a shoot with a girl and she told me that she had somebody for me to uh meet A friend of mine uh, fixed me up with her. He was a lawyer. He was dating this really beautiful girl who was a model for Ford. But it was kind of a whirlwind thing with John and I. I mean, we felt very much in love. And she tells the story Uh about how they meet. And she's like, John was like really upfront with me about how he was in the drug trade. And Tony was like, oh my God, that's super cool. Because as it turns out, I actually know someone with a plane. Do you think that would help with the importing and exporting of all these drugs? And John's like, yeah, I think it might. And it turns out the guy that Tony knows is that guy Monday. Mickey Monday. Mickey Monday. She introduces them. And we see Mickey saying like, yeah, when I first saw John, I thought this guy was a fucking idiot. They hated each other on site. And I'm like, girl, same. I want to say I I didn't like him. First time I meet John, he's driving this black Mercedes two-door that's got drug dealer written all over it. Flamboyant. Um, He just looked like somebody that I don't want to have anything to do with. A sharp guy. But 
I just didn't like his vehicles. Because he's saying John was like making no bones about the fact that he was a drug dealer. He had this like fancy car. <laughs> Mickey's like, I didn't like his vehicle. And I'm right. like, vehicle? <laughs> he didn't like his car. <laughs> And so in my notes, I'm like, whatever, they end up working together right. anyway. And they because, work together for like 10 years. Right. Like they are just like each other's like right hand person. Well, because Mickey Monday says that he's going to introduce John to the Colombians. Right. So he Great. takes John. This guy he doesn't like or trust. Right. Let's introduce him to the Colombian <laughs> cartel. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Great. yeah. So he drives John to this like a house in the outskirts of Miami and he goes in and he meets this guy, Rafa. Yes. And Rafa is like the head guy. And I meet this little guy. He can't be more than five foot four, five foot five. And he introduces himself and he says, my name is Rafa. And he's telling me, you know, I'll give you whatever you want, man. And if you got some money, uh, I'll front you twice the amount of money that you come with. John's big problem at this time is that he needs to sell more cocaine than there is. Like, so he's gotten so many people addicted, but he can't get enough product. So this guy, Rafa, was like, girl, I'll give you however much you want. And John's like, and I said, well, you know, show me something. He takes me in this back room, he pushes a button, and a whole wall opens up like this. And I had never seen so much cocaine in my entire life just sitting behind this wall. I said, okay, I guess you can help me, man. I said, give me a day and I'll put together the money and, you know, I'll be back. It's like a secret <laughs> passageway hallway, again, out of Clue. We're right. back to Clue. And John's like, oh, shit. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's just a wall of cocaine. Perfect. And here we are. Okay, that actually checks out. Yeah. So this guy, John and Rafa, become such good friends. And Rafa's, like, so impressed with how much money John is making. Right. He's like, girl, you're so good at this. You take over my job. I want you to go with this guy Monday, Mickey Monday. Uh -huh. You guys go to Columbia. You get the drugs. You bring it back. Like, you're going to make so much more money. You just go do that, girl. Yeah, do my job because I'm tired. I know. <laughs> and it's now that I'm thinking about it, pretty dangerous. Right. I just don't wanna. Can you do it? And John's like, they're, they're yeah, okay, sure. fine. And they there's this whole bit where they go, John and Mickey Monday go down to Colombia and they meet all the famous drug people. This is the Envigado section of Medellin. It is here that the cocaine bosses meet. And I would hook up with Rafa and Rafa would introduce me to the people he was working with. We met, you might say, the elite of the drug business from Colombia. And it would be the Ochoas. This was Pablo Escobar. People that you read about in books. Carlos Slater. You know, here I was a kid from New York never thinking that this would really happen. They make it sound like they had, you know, an office the size of this with computers and they got 40 secretaries. It's just a bunch of bums down there. They were a bunch of street thugs that got lucky. So the thing about Mickey Monday and John flying into Columbia to get the drugs, uh -huh. they then they had to like get it back. Yeah, so they would take this plane because you know Mickey Monday has all the planes, right? right. So and, and they the were ponytail, like, that frizzy ponytail, that frizzy low ponytail. Uh, doesn't it make you just want to like take the hair off your neck? <laughs> I'm going to put my hair up just because for the sake oh, of it right now. You know what um, words are in Daisy's vocabulary? What? Low side pony. <laughs> of course they are. Of course they are. So Mickey's like, they do this like roundabout thing so that like they don't have to fly in through actual airports. Yeah. And what they do is they like, they fly into Florida and then they fly north. And then they turn around because the drug enforcement people who are paying attention are looking for people coming from the south. Right. They're not looking for anybody coming from the north. We would pop the coast maybe over by Marco Island, fly almost all the way to Georgia and turn around and fly back. Now you look like somebody coming south. Nobody coming from the north south is doing anything illegal. You could move 62,000 dead bodies in a plane in the United States because I don't know how many planes there are in the air at one time, but there's no checking. You, you land at a small airport and they don't have police at every airport. Hey, what's in your plane? We would make it look like we were going into one of the local airports. And what we would do is just make a flyby. They pretend like they're going to stop at an airport, but they don't. They go to their own 
airport yeah. that they built. It's just like a space to land a plane. Right. These aren't like 747s. These no, are just like little planes that I would hate to I be on. <laughs> they're little planes. Between these two idiots and a Coke and a tiny plane, get me out of here. It's my worst nightmare. And Florida, please. <laughs> But then they have this area where they have these landing strips and this thing that looks like a barn but is actually an airport hangar to hide their planes. We built two runways there, put up a couple barns that were really hangars. They look like barns. But when you'd open up the hayloft door, you would see that it was shaped to the tail of an airplane. It looks exactly like an airplane hangar. <laughs> I'm so, it looks nothing like a barn in the middle of Miami. <laughs> Girls, get it together. But they do all of this stuff where they buy like a, a towing company and a gas station. Uh-huh. And it's kind of smart. Like what they do is they put the Coke in a beat up old car. They put it on like a tow truck. Right. And they write up a fake bill of towing or whatever. Sure. And they tell the driver who's in on the whole scheme. Like, girl, if you get pulled over and they want to look in this car and they find all the drugs, you just say like, I don't know. I'm just towing this car. I don't know anything about this. Right. Like it's plausible deniability. Yeah. So there's that. That's one way they're getting the Coke in. They're also getting it in like through the water. Well, here's where I learned something. <laughs> Salt water is really not good for cocaine. Nope. The big problem at first was the packaging of the products. It would get seepage. There would be salt water that would get into it, and it really kills coke. Salt water is really an enemy of coke. Because they're dropping it from the airplane. That's the other strategy, is they drop it from the airplane into the ocean, and then they go retrieve it. And then there's, like, some dumb, stupid story about how, like, they were almost caught by customs on some <laughs> motorboat, and they weren't, and I'm like, who cares? And then John goes on this whole thing where he's like, oh, I had stash houses. I had different stash houses in Miami. I used normal people, working people, that wanted extra money. But I'd use, you know, normal people who wanted to make extra money. I was like, so you're just using these poor people who yeah. need extra income, like in the Colombian drug trade? I know. Do you know the danger you're putting these people <laughs> in? Be a barista. <laughs> Work at Dwayne Reed. <laughs> They're so willing to just tell their stories. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know like, why? That's what you mean about them being proud of it. They totally. love sitting down and being like, look what we got away with. But I here's something. Did you notice this? So Mickey Monday did like one interview in the airplane hangar and that's it, right? Yeah. And he was super grumpy the whole time. Right. But John, every time we see him, he's in a different location. <laughs> he's outside. He's inside. He's in one restaurant. He's in a different restaurant. And I'm like, what? Did you notice that? He's yeah. in a different background. It's true. Inside at night. Outside during the day. Then a different outside. And, different, and I'm like, this guy. I, he really wants to tell the story. He, he just really talk does. and talk and talk. <laughs> and we had to listen to it. I know. So like at this point, we get like 25 minutes about how drugs and cocaine was just everywhere in the 80s. In Miami specifically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we meet this reporter, Edna Buchanan. Oh, yeah. She's like with us throughout. I was just going to say those very words. <laughs> we, we've been doing this a long time. I know. With her shoulder pads for days. Totally. And uh, she's just telling us about how like cocaine was literally falling from the sky. Right. Her version of the story is, and I'm like, Edna, please, you're a journalist. Like, fact check this shit. But according to her... It was one day that the preacher was giving a sermon in a South Dade church, and one of the things he was speaking out against was drugs. And half a million dollars in cocaine came crashing through the roof because the plane that was dropping it got off course. One of the airplanes, probably Mickey Mondays, yeah. <laughs> was flying above it and dropped like several hundred pounds of cocaine through the ceiling of the church in the middle of this sermon. And she's like, see? That's how bad it was. That's how bad it was. But she's also telling us, like, in Miami, in this time in the 80s, like, there'd be car accidents. And, like, rather than waiting for the ambulance, 15 people, like a clown car, would just scatter into the woods. And just leave the weapons and the drugs. Right, because the cops would show up. they pop the trunk, there'd be 80 drugs and 45 kilos 80 of 80 drugs? Grandpa. <laughs> there'd be 80 whole drugs. 
Um, we get a bored news reporter. Ooh, it's been a minute. He says two things. He says that Florida is awash in cocaine. Florida was awash in cocaine. (laughs) He's really bored. I think he's actually like yawning while he's saying it. And then like, because the whole thing is like, now it's coming from Miami to the rest of the country. Uh It's like Studio 54 and all this craziness. Uh uh And so he's also, I guess like, I don't know if it's later in the news report or another one, but he's like. One out of 10 American workers on the job is stoned. New study comes in. One out of 10 American workers is stoned. <laughs> and I'm like, can't it just be Americans? Why workers? The fear mongering is out of control. I know, I know. American you know, workers, like, they could be making your car. And I'm like, they are probably. So then we see John and he's saying like, yeah, of course I tried the Coke I was dealing, but I like wasn't into it. I couldn't figure out why anybody liked it. And then I don't know where they found these kids. Oh, wait, because they were high on Coke. <laughs> on the news being like, oh, God, it's just the best. Oh, I love Coke. Do you have any? Like, do you happen to have any? On the, like, the six o'clock local news. I know. Oh, it's the best. I know. <laughs> oh, I love it. Like, it's a chilled glass of Pinot Gris or, like, a nice martini. This was the part of the documentary that I thought was the craziest. They're talking about, like, the economy of the United States in the mid to late 70s when this is all happening was just in shambles. Every place was in recession. Everyone's going broke. But in Miami, the economy is booming. In Miami, they couldn't get enough gold Rolexes to supply the local market. For the first six months of 1977, retail sales in Miami topped $10 billion. No sign of recession here. South Florida has held up better than some of the other parts of the country. In Miami, we were selling bulletproof cars for hundreds of thousands of dollars. You couldn't get a Ferrari or a Mercedes at all. Ferraris were sold out. (laughs) You couldn't get a Ferrari. (laughs) Or a Rolex. John Roberts is like hiding cash in the ground, like in horse feed. He had horses and horse feed, and that's where all the thousands of dollars were. Because he was telling us he was making so much money, he didn't have anywhere to put it. Like, you can't just keep the depositing a million dollars in the bank every like, month. It was physically becoming like all this clutter. Like, right. you know, like, you know how at home you have clutter, you have a couple yeah. books stacked mm-hmm, up mm-hmm. or like everyone's keys are in the same, the mail. <laughs> all this money. He was annoyed by it. He had to bury $8 million in his front yard. That's insane. I know. You know, this thing, I had garbage bags in my lawn with, you know, each bag had like a million seven hundred thousand dollars buried in the lawn because I had nowhere to put it. And now speaking of like the clutter of money. Yeah. The banks in Miami cannot hold the amount of money in Florida. So I don't understand how money works, obviously. I'm a podcaster. Because I'm like, I thought they were burying all their money in the horse feed in the backyard. So why are the banks overflowing if no one can deposit anything? The Federal Reserve, however it works, of Florida generated a surplus of Five billion dollars one year, which turns out was more money than all the other Federal Reserve banks in the country combined. Forty nine <laughs> other Federal Reserve banks combined did not total the amount that was generated in Miami that year. And everyone was like, hmm. <laughs> no one thought, I wonder why. I know. I know. Huh. Everyone What's was going just on? like, how interesting. I know. Well. And you can't get a Ferrari to save your life. <laughs> weird. Anyway. But then like, so I'm, I just have in my notes like, oh, we get it. There's so much money. Like, I understand. And then I just have in quotes like, but it was blood money. Right. And then I credit it to some very serious person. Right. <laughs> The billions of dollars may have funded a lot of development, a lot of construction in Miami, but it was blood money. 
So remember how this movie started at like the strip mall with the big shooting? And that liquor store. Right. And then we haven't heard about it since. Right. <laughs> We're back. Yeah. The shootout occurred at about 2.30 this afternoon when two or more Latin males entered the Crown Liquor Store here on the west end of the Dadeland Mall. They were followed by two or three other Latin males, and then the shooting began. Inside the liquor store, one Colombian national and another non-Cuban Latin suspected of drug trafficking lay face up in a pool of blood. So they tell us that there are two locations, right? The inside of the liquor store where all these people were massacred. Right. And then out in the parking lot, there's like this van. Right. Only it's not a van. It is a white truck that is completely painted white like everything everything about it is white like i can't stress it enough even like around the license plate like things that weren't white are just painted white on the side of the van it should should read the words not suspicious well it kind of does because what's stenciled on the side of the van it says happy time complete party supply are you kidding me one more time for the people definitely in the back. Definitely not a drug mobile. It's stencil. I know. <laughs> and like like the rent stencil yeah, 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 where it's yeah. like the most industrial, not fun <laughs> font. Happy time, complete party supply. That's I a murder. Know. That's a murder truck. <laughs> when the police open it up, literally it's full of guns and bombs and drugs. And Uzi. Right. <laughs> Someone calls it a war wagon and Edna, our reporter, calls it a death machine. <laughs> Happy time, complete party supply. I will never (laughs) in my life. But this is when the cops are like, oh, shit. The war wagon was really, I think, the big turning point where the police realized what they were up against and how outgunned they were. That's got to be a terrifying realization. Yeah, but you slept on it for a couple of years. The bank was actually (laughs) overflowing with money. Right. You couldn't get a Ferrari to save your life. And your response was, huh. (laughs) I'm not victim blaming here. I'm just saying you slept on it. They say that was the first time that was like a machine gun massacre in broad daylight, but like it was just the first of many, many, many. And so they say like Miami became a war zone and they keep comparing it to Chicago in the 30s, but I won't get into that. Um, And then everyone's comparing it to the Wild West. And I'm like, what was it, you guys? Pick a musical. And then we learn all these horrible statistics, like from the late 70s and into the early 80s, hundreds of murders were happening in Miami a year and the number would go up by the hundreds. And the press keeps telling us they wouldn't cover a double homicide. It just was so passe. It just became commonplace that we were going to be jumping from crime scene to crime scene. We have to have more than four or five people dead to make a big deal out of it. That's insane. That's insane. And then on top of all of that, Fidel Castro, the leader of Cuba, right? he empties the jails, he empties the hospitals, he gets all the quote, like drunkards and poor people, puts them on boats uh-huh. and sends them to America. And they get off in Miami. Yeah, this is 1980. Yeah. And it's described as undesirables, but a news reporter <laughs> says a bunch of words that, frankly, I'm not comfortable with. He describes them as... Murderers, thieves, perverts, prostitutes, the retarded, crippled, the winos, all were rounded up, sent to Mario Harbor, and put aboard boats bound for Miami. What the what? Leave the winos out of this, Excuse sir. Excuse me, sir. I know. <laughs> I'm right here. Say it to my face. But one of these people says that Fidel Castro actually said to a camera... I flushed the toilets of Cuba onto the United States. Thanks, girl. I know. What? I know, I know. But the thing is, this just compounds the problem now. And look, I don't know if this is true or not. I'm We're saying what's in the documentary. Mm-hmm. The documentary is telling us, because this is all very fucking racist and like- Super racist. So I, I'm not saying any of this is real or true. And just like disparaging towards people. It's like totally. that. It's just horrible all around. So they're saying that like, you know, the, the rates 
of like murder, rapes, robberies, all of that stuff. This compounds the problem that already existed. Right. And on top of that, they need more cops to deal yeah. with it, right? Oh, my God. So they went on a, quote, blind hiring frenzy. Right. <laughs> and they used to, Edna, our and- girl Edna tells us, <laughs> they used to have standards. Right. And they used to have standards. You couldn't ever have used drugs if you wanted to be a policeman. So they reduced it to you couldn't have used drugs in the last 10 years. And that didn't work. So they said, well, you couldn't have used drugs in the last five years. They still couldn't recruit enough. So they said you couldn't have used drugs in the last two years. And finally, it got to a point where if you're not under the influence of drugs at the moment, you're hired. If you weren't under the influence of drugs at the very moment, you're hired. And I'm like, I don't know. people just lie? I like, know. like, if someone's asking you, like, have you done drugs in the last five years? Can't you just be like, no. Right. Who's going to, you can't test drugs from five years ago. No. What does it matter? Like, you love cocaine, can- but you're super honest on your cop application. <laughs> you guys, it's actually been, it's. <laughs> Two and a half years. Does that count as under the two? Oh, no. Like, who's, like, being honest Eddie about it? I know. And then they tell us, like, to nobody's surprise, this makes everything even worse in Miami because this leads to, like, the era of the worst corruption in the history of the police force, probably in the world, but definitely in Miami. And Edna's like... And the entire academy class from that year later on went to jail or died. Dead or in jail. (laughs) Can you believe it? And I'm like, yeah, Edna, I can. So we meet this guy, Rivi. His name is Jorge, but like his nickname is Rivi. Okay. He's with us for the rest of the show. Well, I grew up in Chicago. I was a mechanic with my dad. He worked for General Motors. That's where I learned how to break into cars. Well, when I was growing up, I was known as a car thief, one of the biggest car thieves in Chicago. And then after the 80s, I was, I was known to be an assassin for the cartel. Yeah, his lower third is Enforcer. He's confessed to having involvement in 29 murders during the, quote, cocaine wars. He's suspected in another 12 killings. He is talking to us from prison. He really (laughs) wants everyone to know that he killed a lot of people. He killed a lot of people. And so he has this crazy story where he's at a nightclub one night. Uh And some guy comes up to him and says, like, girl, you got to get your girls and get out of here. Because see that table over there with those five people? We're going to take machine guns and blow them all away. And Rivi's like, oh, no problem, girl. I got to go pee first, though. Right. So he goes to the restroom. He sees his friend and he's like, oh, girl. So I went back to the bathroom and I told him, I said, we got to go. It's going to be a shootout here. But I didn't tell him who. He said, just give me a minute. I walked out. Well, during that time, Vanegas had stopped at the same table and told the guys to leave because there was going to be a shootout. So he screwed up the hit. It was just an accident. He knew one of the guys at the table, so that he was just looking out for his friend. The friend that Rivi's friend tells is one of the people that was going to get killed. They're all at the table. So guess what? You guys, no one gets killed tonight in Miami. <laughs> Slow night in Miami. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, Rivi is like, oh, fuck. We really fucked this up. Can you imagine that's a negative? I a know. table of people don't get killed, <laughs> and in your mind, you're like, what did I do? <laughs> what? So basically, like, as Rivy's like, oh, no, some guy walks up to him and he's like, my boss wants to meet with you. And Rivy's like, it was an accident. It was I an accident. I don't have to meet with your boss. I don't have to meet with your boss. Like, I promise, like, I'll kill all these people. I I'm will, so I sorry. Yeah. And so what happens is the guy's like, no, girl, you got to meet with my boss. I'm so sorry. Like, I'm going to take you in the car. And they're in the car and they're driving to meet with this guy's boss. I have possibly to his death, question mark. <laughs> he just gets in the car. Rivy has the same question. Rivy's like, are, are they going to kill me? And the guy is like, no promises. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So they get to the location. It's a holiday in parking lot. (laughs) Fancy pants. If you guys think that this scene is all just like glitz and glamour. No. This is happening in a holiday in parking lot with the head of the cartel. Please. (laughs) Please. So he gets out of his car. He's walked to the car where the boss is. Mm -hmm. I approach the older guy with there. He says, are you Rivi? I said, yes, I am. Come with me. He gets in. Got him back of a car. And in the backseat was a lady. 
It's a woman. Enter Griselda. Oh my, Griselda Blanca. I mean, come on. She was calling the shots. Whatever she said, everybody would just keep quiet. Nobody gave an opinion. It was just whatever she was saying. And her husband was in the front seat. He didn't open his mouth. He's not asking me any questions, just her telling me what to do. She's the one with the power there. I'm, I'm getting this lip from a woman, you know, and I, I don't, I don't have like, like say, go fuck yourself or no, no. And so Rivy is just saying to us like, wait, what? Like this shit is weird. And he's like, you guys, her husband didn't speak. I know, he's in the front seat and he's not talking. Rivy to this day cannot believe that this woman had this kind of power. I mean, most of the men that we meet can't believe that she could string a fucking sentence together. Right. right. <laughs> They're like, not only could she speak intelligently, mm -hmm. by my estimation as a very smart man, right. <laughs> she was powerful and people feared her. Like they to this day can't believe that a woman could quote pull this off. So she's like, all right. Right, look, I'll spare you. Yeah. But here's what you got to do for me. You have to find the guys I actually wanted dead and mm -hmm. kill them. And then we'll call it even. And you have one week to do this. <laughs> so Rivi knows somebody who knows these people. They start paging this guy. They have the beeper number. They are beeping him for days. For four days straight. <laughs> we beeped him. No answer. Second day we beeped. No answer. Third day. I was losing my hopes. No answer. Four day. He beeped the day I answered. He set up a meeting at the Ramada Inn. He told me that we had some guns and some explosives for sale. And I'm like, please tell me you had some guys out on the street looking totally. for the guy. Or did you just beep him once an hour for four <laughs> days? Until finally the guy was like, what? Because after four days he calls back like, stop beeping me. <laughs> and they're like, hey, these guys are so ridiculous. I know. They're like, hey girl, thanks for calling back. Um, Just in case you were interested, we're selling like a shit ton of illegal weapons uh -huh. out of our room at the Ramada down the street. <laughs> just an FYI if you're interested. And the dude's like, really? <laughs> awesome. So he's like, I'm actually in the market for some boozies or whatever. So he goes to the Ramada Inn. Oh my God. They basically like hand off this guy to Griselda's people. But a couple days later at Rivi's house where his wife is frying fish. It's dinner time. It's Sunday at four o'clock. It's dinner down in Miami. <laughs> Griselda shows up to Rivi's house, just walks in. He says, she comes to my house. She just comes in like she owns the house. And my wife was frying fish. She said, oh, I love fish. She's eating, telling me how they killed this guy and chop him up in little pieces while we were having dinner. I said, what are you talking about? You shot this guy? She said, yeah, I shot him. And Kumbamba cut him up and put him in a small box and wrapped him up like a gift with a little bow on top. And we left a couple blocks from here on the turnpike. I just looked at her, I said, you're joking, right? She said, no, for real. I said, you guys usually do that? She said, yeah, she likes it. She likes us to cut people up and just throw them like that. She goes, ooh, I love fish. <laughs> she sits herself down at the head of the table. And she tells Rivi, they killed this guy, they chopped him into a million pieces, they put him in a box, and they dumped him on the side of the highway. They gift wrapped it. Yeah, I know. They, like, wrapped it with a bow. We see the box. We see the chopped up body. We see pictures of all of it. We see a lot of dead bodies and oh, gruesomeness it's in this. horrible. Rivi cannot believe that this crazy bitch is just, like, telling him. With a mouthful of fried flounder. <laughs> Pass the salt <laughs> in detail. I know. And tell me that's not a power move to walk into somebody's house, I know. eat their dinner at the head of their table. I'm saying it. I know. And just describe in detail how you like chop people up. That's a message. I, Griselda, girl. Girl. 
So now we get Griselda backstory. Yeah. So Griselda's story is that her mom was a sex worker and she, Griselda grew up as a pickpocket in Colombia. And then they moved to NYC. I, NYC. What is it about you? <laughs> and, um, and that's where the drugs came in. They go through this so quickly. She gets busted by the Southern District of New York in this big drug bust. It's like the biggest in the history of New York City. She just hightails it out of there. Heads down to Miami. Yeah. So we meet this guy, Bob Palumbo. He's the DEA. He's uh-huh. with us a little bit. He has some choice quotes. The first time I heard her name was the latter part of uh, 1973. From the intelligence that we were given, she did figure as an emerging threat to the United States. I lost track of her from the time of the indictment uh, until I was transferred to Miami. Meanwhile, while we're hearing the story, we are seeing all of these like ridiculous glamour shoddy photos of I know. Her. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and we learn a lot more about her. Like, they call her crazy. She was really flamboyant. She was a hypochondriac. She was pretty decadent. She gave me a brand new Ferrari for Christmas. It was $80,000. She collected wealth. Her Christmas present was always like that expensive. Ava Perone's ring. And Jordy and stuff. A bad freebase cocaine user and abuser. A lesbian as well. Paranoid. Beyond the movies. I mean, I don't even think Miami Vice would be this flamboyant. But, you know, she was known as the queen of cocaine, the black widow. A lot of her husbands, like, mysteriously disappeared. She bought Ava Perone's rings. Yeah. She bought Ava Perone's rings. And she was a lesbian. Yeah, with five kids. Right. (laughs) She had a lot of husbands. And yeah. a lot of kids, but she was also into women. Girl, great. Right. <laughs> but she was also like a hypochondriac. She had like a lot happening. It's really tough because she is a legitimate monster. But like just for a second, you kind of root for her. We hear all of these quotes about how like women are nothing and women could never do this. And or like speak, let alone run ta- a crew. Right. She's running a fucking cartel. Like in the movie version of it, it's like Penelope Cruz plays her. Right. And we like root for her. Right. Except when you learn that she named her fourth son Michael Corleone. I know. Godfather. And one of our detectives looks at us and he goes. Her last son, they named him Michael Corleone Sepulveda, which is fucking incredible. Which is fucking incredible like he can't even it's like this glorifying you guys the mob is bad but she's such a boss bitch like you don't respect her really but like you you sort of are like wow right wow and, and then you're like cool like she was a woman doing what she has to do but then you realize that she was just totally unhinged where like she didn't like the service at a restaurant she would call her army oh that God. she traveled with and they would unload their machine guns on everyone outside the restaurant just to like ruin the business at the restaurant and murder people so we learn we get over and over again that like all of that violence in Miami that we've been talking about for the last hour she's responsible for all of it right Griselda Blanco she was really uh, an angel of death I don't know that any other organization can be attributed to the number of homicides that uh, go back to Griselda. She wants wars with the other cartels. She's pitting people against each other, murdering people for no reason. Yeah, Rivi's like, she'll always find a reason to have a problem with you. She'll always find a reason to go to war, kill somebody. Like, that's sort of her MO. So we got all these crazy stories where, like, her youngest son was, like, 18, and he was just, like, an asshole. And he shows up at some guy's house in the middle of the night, and the guy disrespects him. So he told him, you know, to get the hell out of his house. So he said, well, if you don't let me spend the night, tell my mom. So... Chucho said, I don't give a fuck who you tell. I don't give a fuck about your mom. Tell your mom that I said to fuck herself. Chucho kick him in the ass. They told him, get back in your car. Get the hell out of here. Tell your mom that I kick your ass. So when the kid went back home, told his mom. And, you know, that's one thing about that. You couldn't touch your kids. It didn't matter who it was. That person would die. So Griselda puts a hit out on this guy and Rivi and his team go to, like, find him and kill him. And he's driving in his car and they're driving in a van 
and they like shoot a machine gun through the car and they don't kill him. They end up killing his two-year-old son. Who was in the backseat of the car that they couldn't see. Well, the next day, Griselda called me. She says, his son got killed. His son was in the back of the car sleeping. And the bullets went right through the trunk of the car and hit him in the head. I said, we never saw him. Because if I would have seen it, we would have never touched that car. She says, he told me to tell you that he's going to get with you. Because he saw you. Which also, Rivi, like, now he's he's screwing up every hit I've heard about right, from him. Right. <laughs> but it's so awful. I mean, like, we see the body of this two-year-old boy way too much. Without any warning at all. It's just brutal. And, like, the dad and the kid's mom are just sobbing. And because they're also drug dealers, they can't call the cops. And so they just wrap the baby's body up and bring it to a mosque and then call the cops and say, like, this is where the body of my two-year-old son With, is. With, like, the passport so that they could really identify the baby. But, yeah. like, they couldn't go for any kind of help because they were in the scene. And it's like, you know, this movie is overly long, but they include stories like this to really put a face on what a monster this woman was. Yeah. But at the same time, then we get like, you know, Rivi was really her favorite. And I'm like, why? I know. <laughs> it seems like he screwed everything up. So here's another story about like just how insane this whole thing was. There's another guy that Griselda wants killed. Right. But she wants him shanked at an airport. And it has to be like inside in the airport and she wants Rivi to do it. Griselda, she says, uh, well, we're going to get him at the airport. You are. She reached under one of the tables and stuff and hands me a bayonet, 16-inch bayonet. She said, I want you to kill him with this. She want him stabbed to death. I said, what's this? Change styles or something, you know? They call him the pig. She want him killed like a pig. She said, yeah, but you have to get him inside. I said, no, I don't go inside the airport. She said, why not? I said, no, it's a suicide mission. I don't do suicide missions. And Rivi is like, absolutely fucking not. At the airport. At the airport. And we see the shank. So we learn about this guy like Crazy Miguelito. And Crazy Miguelito, apparently he'll do anything. Well, Miguelito is kind of like Rivi with no class. I mean, Miguel told me one day if, he had, if the money was right, he will walk up to the White House and kill the president. He's like, oh, I'll do it. And so Rivi is saying to him, like, I will go with you and point out who this guy is, but I am not involved in this at all. We are watching this, like, in real time. So we see the guy gets off the plane. And as he walked out from customs, a man came up with a bayonet. Miguel's coming from behind him. Puts him choke on, picks him up, and starts stabbing him. With a bayonet. Several times. I counted six or seven. I mean, everybody in the airport was, like, with their mouths open. Like this, this everybody's in shock. Nobody's saying nothing. Drops on the floor, and he takes off running. That's when everybody starts screaming. The word bayonet was used. I know he's oh. using an actual fucking bayonet. Yeah. And the people in the airport are like screaming and running for their lives. Because it's, the, it's this is why Rivi didn't want to be involved. It's the airport. <laughs> Can you imagine? You're just getting off your flight from like fucking Minnesota. I know it's the early '80s, but it's still an airport. <laughs> And so this guy falls to the ground and the cops tackle Miguelito in five seconds. And Rivi's standing right there and he's like, bitch, that's why I didn't want to do this. Right. And then the guy lives. The guy <laughs> survives the shaking at the face. airport. And then he lives. Rivi? This is why Rivi's in prison. I know. <laughs> So finally, after what seems like an eternity of drugs and violence and murder and blood and whatever, the war on drugs starts. Yeah, so it's like the 80s and Reagan is president and Bush is the vice president and they finally start to take this shit seriously. The cocaine wars, the level of violence, the homicide rate, the cover of time, Paradise Lost, led to action. Vice President Bush's task force on violent crime in South Florida flooding Miami with federal agents. Finally, the rest of the United States was waking up to it that it was not a Miami problem, 
it was a national problem. But the thing is, like, they waited too long, and they went right. straight to 100, and they made everything worse. Exactly. And uh-huh. so like, they're seizing drugs, and they're going all out, and it's just, like, it's just a fiasco. And the thing that's really crazy about it, like, we're supposed to be happy at this point, because you see all of the arrests that they're making, and all the people that they're stopping, and it screamed of stop and frisk to me, mm-hmm. which is, like, a thing that was in New York where, like, an officer could stop you and frisk you without cause. Based on the way you look. Based on the way you look, which obviously means people of color are so disproportionately affected by it. It was right. a completely ridiculous, like, it didn't it so do stupid. any good. But that's what these images were to me. Right. Every image of, like, somebody getting pulled over or shoved onto a car or arrested or thrown in jail was a person of color. There was not a single white person. Yeah, no, it sucked. Yeah. It made everything worse. Yeah. So basically, this is where everyone gets brought down in the end. Griselda has to hightail it out of Miami. She, like, moves to California. And this guy, Max, who we learned about, like, way earlier in the movie. Yeah, so we met Max with John Roberts and Mickey Monday, like, yeah. that whole crew from the very beginning. His name is Max Mermelstein, and he was Mer- also... Wait, I'm sorry. His name is what? Max Mermelstein. <laughs> Our job is to report the facts or just talk about what's in the documentary. So he was a drug smuggler, and he flipped. Just yeah. like that Snap of a finger, he rats everybody out. Max rolled. He rolled over on all of us. And started cooperating with them in jail. I told John. He didn't believe, he didn't listen to me. I told him from day one that Max was weak, that he was snitching us later, you know, down the road. And, you know, that's why I wanted to kill him so bad. They wouldn't let me, you know. The government had no idea, and honest to God, if it wasn't for Max Mermelstein, I don't think they would have ever caught us. He filled in the gaps. Max was like family. I never figured he'd do what he did. But the thing that's so insane about this is like, remember Mickey Monday? I do. He's like shocked and hurt. He's like, Max was family. Girl, what did you think was going to happen? And when we first met them, nobody liked Max. Right. <laughs> like, that's the thing we skipped over because it's so stupid and right. Max is only important right now. But like, nobody liked him. And then they're like, Max, I thought we were family. And it's like, there is no such thing. Right. Now, like the DEA, the cops, are, they're all coming for everybody. And we get this crazy story. Remember that barn airport hangar thing? Uh-huh, just an airport hangar. Right. So Mickey Monday is there. The cops show up and Mickey Monday like freaks out and shoots a flare gun at like a barrel of gas. Yeah, bad idea. I tried to burn the airplane. Mickey had a flare gun and around the plane there were gasoline tanks which were used to refuel the plane to get out of there. I pushed one over. Well, Mickey wanted to escape so he shot the flare gun. So I hit the swamp. Watch the show all day long. But he blows it up and he runs into the swamp and he gets away for six years. He is a fugitive. For six years, it worked. A U.S. Marshal, I know. probably Art yeah. from Murray, <laughs> arrests him after six years on the run. And we learn that John Roberts, like, he gets arrested too. He goes to jail for a couple years. And he, like, gets out, moves back to Florida. Yeah, and we get this whole, like, montage of basically just these two people, John Roberts and Mickey Monday, being like, oh, God, it was so great. I know. <laughs> God, you know, you can't do drugs anymore. Everyone's so uppity. Like, they're basically talking about, like, the good old days. And Mm -hmm. you can't just, like, you know, I remember, you know, there used to be a time back in Miami (laughs) where if you don't like the service in a restaurant, you can gun people down with a newsie. It's like, where are my constitutional rights? I get out of prison, the whole world's upside down. And I'm like, John, shut up. You're lucky to be alive. I know. 
It's so true. How how Griselda didn't kill him, I will never know. I know. So speaking of Griselda, Griselda had to leave Miami. She moves to Los Angeles and she tries to get Rivy to come with her. Rivy's like, girl, the jig is up. We're, <laughs> I'm, we're, I'm tired. Oh, I'm Are exhausted. Tired? Right. So Griselda's trying to like run her shit from Los Angeles. Something happens where she gets into it with another cartel. She has somebody killed and basically like the DEA tracks her down. And this DEA agent is saying that he like goes into her house. They break down the door. They go into her bedroom where they find her on the bed reading the Bible. I went upstairs and found her sitting in bed reading the Bible. And I just walked up to her, obviously had my, my weapon drawn. She was pretty startled. You would never think that she was a violent homicidal maniac. And then I gave her a little kiss on the cheek, as I promised I would to the agents many, many months earlier. Unbelievable. Reading the Bible. Chriselle, t- take it down a couple notches. Have a goddamn seat. But they like she goes to jail and you guys, there's this whole scandal that goes down where Rivi was going to testify against her. Right. And she was going to get either the death penalty or she was going to go to jail forever. But he ends up not being able to testify because he gets caught up in a phone sexing scandal like a sexting scandal with like the DEA's office like the good guys right so everyone who was like building her case plus their star witness was having phone sex with Rivi unbelievable so Griselda's like bye she's just like (laughs) there she goes this doesn't make any sense to me like Rivi they can't use him as a witness because he's been having phone sex with the cops keep it in your pants for five minutes he's also not even that hot she's killing children can you put the phone down for five minutes (laughs) so Griselda ends up she does go to jail and this cop is saying to us like there's certainly nobody more deserving of the death penalty than she is she should be on death row but i'll take a little bit of uh comfort in the fact that uh, at least until i retire she'll still be in prison i can't say for how much longer but she will be still be in prison as long as i'm a cop you guys, the on-screen text says he retires in like 2003. <laughs> Six months later, she's released from prison. Great. And they send her back to Columbia. And so this movie was made in 2006, right? Yeah. So it ends on like her whereabouts are unknown. Yeah. <laughs> you guys, in 2012, she was killed. The cocaine wars continue and she was like gunned down in the street. And what do you feel? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Girl, we did it. That was a really long movie. It was so long. I hope you guys liked what we did with it. I know. You guys, just a reminder, tickets for our 2020 live tour, at least the first part of it, are on sale right now. The first leg The first leg. Tour. And then other things to be announced very soon. I, I was going to say, I'm scared to say anything because... No, right. Mom's the word. You guys, no, you got to do me. Shut up. You guys, super, super big announcement coming soon. That's all I'm saying. That's I all know. I can say. Are you excited about the super big announcement coming yeah, soon? Yeah, I have to pee about it. I know. Like, I actually have to pee. That's how excited I am. <laughs> also, you guys, if you want more Jillian and me, get in the Patreon. Over 100 full bonus episodes download right the second you know what it is all the series that you want us to cover we got your back it's We're right on there it. for better or worse it's for all there better or goddamn worse. characters girl what are we doing next bikram so the bikram documentary you guys on netflix yeah. listen there was a podcast about this like a year ago that i listened to this story is crazy i cannot wait to watch this documentary i watched it already i mean what do you think oh i've never wanted to do yoga less <laughs> which <laughs> is 
saying a lot. Yeah, lots of heroes and lots of garbage. Yeah. It's perfect for us. Girl, where can they find us? They can find us at truecrimeobsessed.com. Our Gorge website has yeah. all your merch codes and it has all the episodes and our calendar. And our live shows. And our live shows. Patreon, all of that. It's everything. They can find you on the social media at Jillian with a G on all the things. They can find you at Patrick Hines underscore on Insta. Uh-huh. And at Patrick Hines on Twitter. On the Twits. Yay. You guys, we love you. Stay tuned for our outtakes and the trailer for that Bikram documentary. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Uh, and we love you. We'll see you soon. We love you. Thank you so much. Oh, you're going to hate Bikram. I you're going to hate the guy, not the documentary. <laughs> I can't wait. All right, bye. Bye. This is what's happening in Beverly Hills. There's a yoga college of India, and the man who runs it is Yogi Bikram. You've never really done yoga until you've done a Bikram class. With millions in the bank and millions of followers, Bikram is doing something right. People would say, what's he like? And I would say, he sees himself as a cross between Mother Teresa and Howard Stern. He was a teacher who was going to make me perfect. He saw potential in you that you might not see. But he has a really ugly side. He looked at me and said, suck that fat stomach in. I don't like to see the jiggle jiggle. Bikram was so good at getting inside of our brains. I'm going to start with the last drop of blood you have. How could smart women endure weeks with this guy? I'd seen flashes of megalomania, but I didn't know how diabolical he actually was. Don't look so sad. He kept telling me that he wanted to make me famous and that I just had to stay close with him. That's why I am here. Bikram called me out of class and into his office, and he said, what are we going to do about us? Should we make this a relationship? And it was just like, oh my god. I don't want to say that I was brainwashed, but that's what was happening. There was a camp that was going to hang him by his nails. And there was a camp that was saying, these girls asked for it. It was really hard, because it wouldn't be the person who I am today without him. The young women who want to believe in something so badly, those are the people that he targets. A lot of people tell a lot of stories, and that becomes their truth. I'm happy he's still teaching class. You are not intelligent, wise, experienced enough to understand who I am. It's not over. find you on <laughs> wait we've been off for a week i, I haven't done this wait i have an idea for a show called the indigo golden girls uh-huh where it's like the golden girls but the house is full of the indigo girls and paula cole and sarah mclaughlin what do you think every single person who talks for one minute and then we never see again gets a, like a, their name on the chiron and one of them nice nice hey, thank you <laughs> i used to work at tv for like five seconds same so we get we meet this guy Al Sunshine who yeah. was a reporter <laughs> down in Miami and I'm like why are we meeting him is it just because his name is Al, Al Sunshine? Sunshine yeah you guys that's the reason that's <laughs> I want to learn more about Al Sunshine that's true I was like Dan Rather is that you it wasn't I know but it was somebody like that it was the Gloria Gomez of Miami <laughs> what up Patreon I know. that one was for you Biscayne Bay I'm that's a that's a thing in Florida okay I know that from the Golden Girls take your word for it yeah. After, in my notes, after every like little section, uh -huh. it's either shut up in all caps 
Who cares? Or blah, blah, blah. Why or, do they? Or sarcastic, like, cool. Right? <laughs> like, I'm just very upset. Also during this part, we're learning about all these like fancy restaurants and this is this one restaurant called The Forge and they show Ooh, the exterior okay. of it and it is literally the same exterior shot they use on the Golden Girls when the girls go out for a fancy dinner. Aww. It's the exact same shot. Is there like, does Golden Girls, do they have like conspiracy theories where it's like maybe they really were in the drug trade? <laughs> No, but I have in my notes 800 times. Like, the Golden Girls started in, like, 1986 when all of this shit was going down. Why would Rose, Sophia, Blanche, and Dorothy wanted to... Why would they want to live in Miami? The weather. I, I, you don't have to shovel your walk <laughs> in Miami, I guess.